Hey, this is Pablo Gonzalez, your Chief Executive Connector, and this is another one of those special kind of episodes. Now, if you go back to episode 9, I did an interview with my dad about his biggest failure point and his last really big win. And at the end of the episode, I referenced that we're going to go back into my dad's life and talk about all the different periods that have made up his life that I find really fascinating. My dad as this Cuban refugee made successful businessman with a very interesting career. And this is the first revisit into that. This is my dad's childhood in Cuba before and up until the Castro Revolution and their necessity to flee their country. I chose to talk about this period and release this now because we are in this weird state of civil unrest and this turnover of power that we're going through in the United States. And I think it's important to understand the way that revolutions felt to a child, to a family before they ever happened so that we can learn from history and assess and see what period we're in, how does that compare, what is different, how do we improve from lessons learned. So this is my dad's childhood in Cuba. Pretty interesting stuff. Enjoy. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, In my walks, every man I meet is my superior in some way, and in that I learn from him. This means every single person you ever interacted with has done something slightly different than every single other person and therefore has something to teach you. And you, my friend, have something to teach them. This means every conversation you have is both a chance to learn something and a chance to make an impact. Every networking event or conference you walk into is both a library and your stage. Your network is your personal Google and you are a part of everyone's Wikipedia. My name is Pablo Gonzalez, and I am your Chief Executive Connector. Follow me as we meet people in my walks. Find out what we can learn from them, what they've learned from others, and what made them want to connect so you can learn to gain and give value to others in all of your interactions. I am terrible at asking for stuff, but if you want to do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Let me know what you've learned from each episode, or at the very least, Hit me up if I can ever be of service or any kind of value to you. Now, without further ado, let's get connected. Talk to me about what you remember of being a 10-year-old kid in Cuba. Like, you left Cuba at 14, no? I, I, I would just turn 15. You turned 15. Yeah, just turned 15. Tell me what you remember pre-Castro stuff. Tell me kind of what you remember life to be like. Uh, I remember quite a bit. Yeah, I imagine. Um, we were a very active family. Uh-huh. We belonged to this club called Club de Profesionales, uh-huh. where in Cuba, most people, middle class and up, joined the clubs and lived a very healthy life. I remember that after school, I would do my homework, and then we would go to the club and I would do sports. That's how I started playing tennis because we were a bunch of kids and we would go to the, you know, I would meet my friends at the club and at the beginning we were playing what is called front tennis or squash. It's not squash like what you see with a close court or anything. It was like a bigger court, three walls, and it was 
is more like high ally with a racket than, than, than squash, but we call this squash. And after that, we I started dabbling in tennis. And at what, at what age, what age did you play tennis for the first time? About 11. 11. Okay. About 11. I, I played before, but at 11, I started playing seriously. And when I was 12, the club decided to enter me in the national championships on the 13, and, and I won it. I, I, I became, in 1958, I became the champion tennis player of 13 and under in Cuba. National champion. National champion. What am I? Triple champion. Because <laughs> triple. I won the individual, I won uh-huh. the, 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 the individual championship. Uh-huh. Then I won, I won the doubles with a, a fellow that played on my team called Gustavo Antorcha. And I also won the mixed doubles with a girl, what's the last name was Montaner, but I don't remember her first her first, her first name. So it was a, actually a great year, and I got to be on TV. I have that picture sitting in our house in Miami. That's right. And uh, it shows one of the most famous moderators, sports moderators in, 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 in Cuba, handing me the cup for 13 and under. I also remember loving my school. Cuba was a special place. There were no less in Havana. There were no less than ten American schools, schools that a Cuban kid could go and from kindergarten on learn English, study in English. The education system in Cuba was very flexible. I would let you do that for the first, you know, during the first six grades, including kindergarten and, and pre-primary. My mom who was a great visionary. She said that. The future was for those that spoke English. So from the from the very beginning. This is 1942. No, when I started school. When, when your mom said the future is for those that, was, that spoke that was, English. No, no. I mean, I'm sure she said it in 1942, but I, I was born in 45. You were born in 45. Pardon? I was born in 45. You were born in 45. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm the earliest. So war so, baby. So <laughs> by so by night. Okay. So. Post-World War II, it was clear to Abuela Berta that this was going to be an American period of, of like, kind of world Absolutely. influence. Absolutely. And, and she wanted, she spoke English. She was an educated person. And as a matter of fact, that she was, at the beginning of her white life, until almost three or four years old, when she could work, she was an executive secretary for an assistant for one of the, the president of one of the larger banks in, in Cuba. So she spoke English, my dad didn't, but she convinced my dad that my sister and I had to go to the, the American school to learn English for more kids. And I always say that to all of you, I don't remember what it was not to speak English. We were indoctrinated in, in the, from, the very, from the very beginning of our lives. And this school, at the beginning called Cathedral School, it was an Episcopal school in Havana. And even though I was a Catholic, you know, we would we would attend Episcopal school, and we had one hour of Spanish. Everything else and every other subject was taught in English. So I loved the school. I did sports there too. Havana and Cuba was a very sports-minded city. Baseball was game, and, and you had to do some sports in order if you were if you were young. There were very few kids that did not participate in sports. Uh, there were facilities to do that. So I went to the theater school. Was was the beach a big part of your life? A what? Did you go to the beach a lot as a kid? Yes, yes. We. That's a good question. The club had a beach. That's right. You had like a beach club. I, right? I lived half a block from the ocean, so I would walk 
down the street, across one of the avenues there in, in Miramar, which was the community that I lived in. Yeah. And then we'd go into the club and we would swim. In the ocean? I, well, there's a pool. Actually, there were, there were, at, they, the club was at the center of life. So tennis classes, swimming classes, Got sports it. were Got done it. at the club. And the club would provide a coach for the kids that belonged, that were members, could, could do that sport. So we did baseball, we did squash, we did tennis, swimming, and we, we were required to compete. The clubs in Havana, five of the clubs that were the best clubs, they were called the Big Five. There's a, there's a club like that. Uh-huh. And, and when, when, when the Cubans came to Miami and they had a little bit of money, they found it. One club. One club that, that's Miami, why it's that, called that the Big would, Five. That would encompass all of the... Uh-huh. All of the clubs in Havana, and that's why it's called Big Five. I wonder why that was that. No, that's that's what it is. They couldn't, I mean, Biltmore, Profesionales, Havana Club, Minamar Jack Club, and Medal Tennis. Those were, those were the five clubs that were... I'm interested in this club concept, Bob. So is this, so it was like, a, it was like a social club where members would find, would fund the group coaching of whoever, of whatever kid wanted to like be a part of. The kids that were members or, 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 or sons and daughters of, of children of members had the opportunity to do like about five or six sports there there was there, there were coaches there included with the membership fee or is this like included interesting do you think that business model could exist right now that that sounds like a super attractive thing for parents no? well, for today we we practically i remember my we would we would my sister and i we were 10 or 11 you remember about 10 years old we would walk to the club yeah. by ourselves. Yeah. And when we got to the avenue that had to be crossed before we reached the club, that was about you know half a block from us, the doorman would come and help us cross the street. And 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 then and that was the that was our world. And there was all the an adult world. They had dining, they had yeah. bar, it had places where you could play cards. It was like a family centered social environment that was now, come to think of it, it was enviable. I've never seen anything like that. And we've lived in many places, but I've never, I've been to it, and I've been in members of other clubs, but I've never seen anything like what we had in Cuba. That, that's what I'm kind of getting to. Like, I've never heard of anything this amazing. Like, it sounds incredible. It was like that. It was like that. And, and it was very simple at that time. We very, it wasn't even, I remember my, my the, the fee was $15 a month. One, five, $15 a month for everything. I mean, if you have, if you, if you consume food or whatever, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that would cost you more. Interesting. Interesting. Tell me about it. So, abuelo and abuela, pre-Castro revolution. Can you kind of tell me about the home life? Like, like did did? So you said that you said that you said that abuela didn't. She stopped working right before you were born. No, she stopped working a couple years after I was born. A couple years after you were born. You see, my, my family, I think, was a typical middle-class family moving upwardly fairly quickly. My, my dad, who was a very well-educated man, he had two degrees. He was an accountant and a lawyer. And at one point in time, he joined this company. Uh, it's pharmaceutical company called Laboratories Vetter. And my grandfather on his side, on my father's side, loaned him some money so that he could become a small partner. And 
he became like a CFO and a, and a, and a minority partner. With time, as I was growing up, my dad began buying out his other partners. And at the end, he owned the company together with one other partner. And this happened within a span of 15, 15 years since I was born until we left. Later on, the, the uh, pharmaceutical company, that laboratory was taken over by the government, and, and that was the end of that. So as my father progressed economically, yeah. uh, two or three years before my sister was born, and she was born two and a half years after that, he asked her to quit her job and just be a homemaker. And my mom was a homemaker, you know, from from I was three. No, for your memory. For, for no, till she, she yeah, yeah, yeah. passed away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then tell me, so can you talk to me about the period of as the Castro, as Castro becomes a subject of conversation and it's happening? Okay. Cuba being a very advanced country, economically and socially, mm-hmm. was not lucky to have good politicians. Let me start with that premise. And Cuba was freed from Spain in 1902. And then it became kind of a protectorate of the United States. So Americans were very involved in everything in Cuba, including dictating policy through certain agreements that had been reached when the Americans helped us be independent, okay? So, um, during the 60 year, or the 59 years, or gets 57, from 1902, when, when the Republic, when the Americans finally left and we had our own government freely elected, mm-hmm. Don Tomas Strada Palma being the first president, through 1959, when Castro took over, there were several coup attempts and presidents that were put in there by the military or the free elections were not were held and, and a lot of the times there was a period of time in Cuba and Cuba had like about four presidents in two years. So it was kind of a political mess if you want to, if, 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 if you understand. And cast and in 1953, I think, a general used to be a sergeant and through the different Coops and all of that, this guy became a general called Fulgencio Batista, took over the government in a military coup on the 10th of March, I think, if I'm not mistaken, of 1953. And the people of Cuba weren't happy with that. So that opposition began taking different forms, and one of the forms it took was the students in the University of, of Havana would rebel and would create trouble, and they would put in jail. Fidel Castro was one of those. And he decided at one point in time that he was going to form a group and was going to take over a, a military, what do you call it, the places where they live. And it was like a, a fort. A fort. But there should be another... He, he like stormed the fort. He tried to storm the fort and he failed and he was taken prisoner. Now, it's... Most people don't know that Fidel was married originally to a lady that whose family was very much involved with the Batista government. 
Mm. I mean, they were politicians, they were rich people, those diaspolar. Aha, diaspolar of those that are in Miami today, yeah, they, yeah. you know, they're being, they're, yeah. they're, they're in the Congress and they're yeah, bankers yeah, and they're, you yeah. know. They're, pu they're public her, servants. Fidel Castro's wife was, Mar Mirta, I think it's Mirta Diaz-Balart, okay? okay? So that when he was caught and all that, the Diaz-Balart, I think, intervened with Batista and Batista exiled Fidel Castro. Okay. From then on, people knew about him. And they so knew that, about it. he knew about the, they knew about the assault on on the on the barracks at, at, at the Moncada Fort, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden in 1956, Castro gets a buys a, with with help from the Cuban people and others that were in exile, anti-Batista individuals. He buys this ship and he decides he's going to invade Cuba and start a revolution in the Oriente Province, and he did that. It was a failure at the beginning, but it, it was in everybody's mind that there was a group of armed, armed soldiers, rebels in the Oriente, in the Oriente, in the Oriente Mountains, and the Fidel Castro was the leader of them. I think a year or so later, when uh, he hadn't got done anything, hadn't, hadn't advanced anything, but so do you as no, let me finish as a twelve-year-old, uh -huh. you you were cognizant that all this stuff is happening as a twelve-year-old. I was cognizant of that, that that Fidel Castro was there in the mountains. In the mountains, starting some from 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 eight from from I was eight or nine. Okay. Or, 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 okay. Let me see. Okay. Okay. Uh, so it's just it's just eight, eight nine, the... ten, eleven, okay. twelve, whatever. Okay. Because my my grandfather on the mother's side and my grandmother lived with us in our house in Havana, mm -hmm. our apartment in Havana, mm -hmm. and in the dinner table, my dad and him would talk about it. They were, they, they did not like the Batista dictatorship. And they all talked about how great would be if Fidel Castro would be successful and take Batista down and hold three elections. Mm. That was a promise that we believed in. And he became a household whole world word in the States when, when a journalist uh, called Herbert Matthews from the New York Times came, went to Sierra Maestra, which is the mountain range where he was hiding out and rebelling, and actually interviewed Fidel Castro and introduced him to the world as the savior of Cuba and the one that, that, that was going to topple yeah. Batista and lead Cuba to a new democracy. Mm -hmm. That was what we were, we were sold. Okay. So everybody, I mean, what I say, maybe 95% of the Cuban people supported him. So it wasn't, it wasn't difficult to understand that, and the Americans also at one point in time said they stopped supporting Batista. Mm -hmm. So Batista just fled in 19, New Year's Eve of 1958. Mm -hmm. And he left Cuba, and Castro came into Havana. He paraded. He came from Oriente, which is on the eastern part of Cuba, all the way to Havana. And remember that Cuba is about the size of Florida, mm -hmm. so that that trip was like going from Tallahassee to Miami. Okay. 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 That that would be, and he would, and, and people would would flock to his to, to see the caravan that was coming in, etc. But these et that fled preemptively just because the U.S. said that they don't support him. It was a combination of things. Nobody okay, supported well, him. I'm more interested in your history than the history of Cuba. But continue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it was. It was. It was. It was. You know, he you. he left because he lost the support of the U.S. and he yeah. lost the support of the people. Mm -hmm. And I guess he had sold in enough money so he could just flee. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. He ended up in. And Castro just became the de facto guy that rolled in. Castro just rolled in. And he named the provisional government. And he promised at the time when he rolled into Havana, they rolled in holding crucifixes and, uh -huh. and, and you know, medals and all of that. And he promised that, the, that, that Cuba would have free elections 
so on and so forth. And so everybody he, was very happy. When he rolls into Havana, does this pass in front of your house? What are you? Are you like running no, behind the parade? No, like, no. You know where we were? Where were you? I was playing in the Orange Bowl. In, were, in, I was playing. I I was. I, you were playing because tennis that year Bowl. was when I when I won my my tennis championship. Okay. So we were, and and there's a funny there's a, a very interesting story because. Orange Bowl, as you know, is in December, late December. Mm-hmm. So we came over, a delegation from tennis players from Cuba, from 18, 18 and under to my age, 13 and under. Mm-hmm. And we played we played the Orange Bowl. And the fellow that represented the government that brought us here, mm-hmm. he he was, of course, a Batista a person. Batista appointee, right? Ah, here's, and my dad and my mom and my sister flew with me and we were staying at the at, at a hotel in Miami Beach and we we, we played at, at, at Flamingo Park. Mm-hmm. So while this was going on, we were hearing that Fidel Castro was advancing on that on on on, on, on Havana and that he was very successful in the revolution. And, and this you, felt you were hearing this through a television station, through newspapers, radio, like newspaper, radio, whatever. What's, what's the media of the day? The, the TV, TV. Paper, so there is TV. Newspaper, like Miami Herald, Miami News. Okay, okay. okay you know, okay, we okay. were and radio and okay. and word of mouth and. Okay, so you and, hear and, about stuff that happens and, the day this, before the next day. And listen to what happened uh-huh. on December 27, nineteen fifty-eight. This guy that that brought us over mm-hmm. has a massive heart attack and oh he's taken God. to the hospital. And my dad goes to visit him because he was sick. And this fellow grabs him and his sick back and says, Mr. Gonzalez, Fidel Castro is a communist. He said, whatever you do, make sure that you take some money, some money out of Cuba because I think that most of the people are going to have to flee. So, but nobody believed him because we thought this is a Batistiano, you know, Batista supporter saying saying things that what Batista was saying, and we, nobody really believed that Fidel Castro would be communist and be that the U.S. would let ninety miles from from their from from, the, from from Key West a communist country. Nobody that was nobody could fathom that it was couldn't happen. So, it took us eight days after the tournament was over before we could get a plane to get back to Cuba. And there we go. I went back to school, not a big deal. And we were enjoying... So now, when this guy said this to, to your dad, was that like inside information or is that like stuff that people are whispering and anybody could have said that? No, Batista was putting out that story. The Batista Castro was putting was, out that story. There, there was okay. a, they were, and the Batistianos were putting out okay. the story that he was Got a communist. It. And this guy just said it to my dad. Like, I am sure I know for a fact that he's a communist. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right? And then this fellow dies. And then he from, dies from from a heart attack. He 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 never saw Fidel coming into into Havana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my dad that that my dad was in my dad's mind. I bet. So even though we're very happy, okay. So we, you come back to Cuba. Yes. Life just as normal so yes, far. Yes, I okay. go back to my school. You've so been part so of forth. a political disaster forever. And unbeknownst to me, my dad every time he had a couple of dollars, he would send it to the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> to, for, just in case, mm-hmm. and. Things were normal for about six months. The only thing that was not quite what we expected is that the Batistianos, especially soldiers or, or, or members of the armed forces of mm-hmm. the Cuban government, mm-hmm. which, by the way, the Fidel Castro dissolved the, the, the armed forces of Cuba mm-hmm. the minute he got into Havana. And he sent them all home and he created his own militia which is people that were loyal to him 
and we thought loyal to Cuba too, but I mean, it was loyal to him. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, we had no army, no navy, only the only only the only, only the militia from the two. And the and the thing that worried us is that these people that were captured from the Batista government, or, or, or they were being they, they were facing firing squads, and there was no death penalty in Cuba. Mm. Castro brought it with him mm. the day after he entered Havana, and these trials looked very much like kangaroo trials okay. where the uh, I guess the accused were brought in handcuffs sitting on the sit, sitting on, 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 on like, like a stage mm-hmm. and they were asked witnesses oh did this, did this guy abuse you did he kill anybody do you, do you recognize him and it was looked like very fakey and at the end the sentence was always the, the death penalty Wow. And we, that was, that went on very early. Were those shown on television? Sorry? Those trials, were they shown on television? How yes. Did, how did you see these yes, trials? TV. You saw them on television? Yeah. Of what it looked like a stage trial of someone saying, oh yeah. And, oh, and you, I, had a, you, had, you had the accused on a pedestal, the judge here, yeah. I don't know if they had a jury or not. Okay. I mean, but, and then witnesses would come in and obviously... I remember one. So this was like an orchestrated kind of like propaganda machine for the government, no? Like to, I to, think it was it was showing yeah. who he was. Yeah, we just didn't recognize it. I mean, we 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 at, at the beginning, I mean, not 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 all of those guys could were murderers. Correct. And these trials, not one not one person was innocent. This is like is I guess would this be akin to kind of like what Duarte is doing in the Philippines, like extrajudicial kind of killings of just like nah, these people are bad people, so they deserve to die. No, 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 no. More this is nothing like it. They were. Like they would go the whole way of like showing that they went to trial and then death penalty. It wasn't like most of the people that were on trial were yeah. soldiers, okay. ex-soldiers, okay. ex-member of the armed forces during the Batista regime, mm-hmm. that were accused of killing and torturing, or members of the policemen, yeah. or they, he had not started on the opposition yet okay. because there was no opposition. Everybody was in favor of Fidel Castro, and we were just waiting for when he was going to call for free elections. By the way, he named the president of Cuba. He named, he was nothing. I mean, for the first six months mm-hmm. after he came into Havana, Fidel Castro didn't have an official job yeah, yeah. within the Cuban government. He was like the guru, that, but he, he was, was just speaking in television all yeah, the time yeah, yeah. and saying, I want this, I want that. He was just on stage always. And, 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 and whatever he said. And everybody just kind of like fell in line, the, right? Like he, they just... Never got elected anything. So just kind of by consensus became the leader of Cuba. Like just by kind cons- of like quiet, implicit quietness. No, he said he had earned it in battle. And nobody and nobody challenged it. And everybody was like, yep, okay, he earned it. Not at that time. Okay. Not at that time. Uh-huh. Because he, he never fulfilled his promise. And what happened is that about four or five months into that stage... Mm-hmm where Cubans thought that Castro would bring freedom and mm-hmm. new elections and yeah. true democracy. Mm-hmm. One day he gets on TV and he stayed just like a 24-hour sit-in saying that he wasn't happy with how the provisional government had had done things. He wanted to accelerate certain measures. He didn't give, any, he give a lot of examples. And he maybe he made up errors or mistakes that the provisional government had made. Mm-hmm. And 
he sat there until the president that he himself her name resigned mm-hmm. and all of the cabinet resigned and then Fidel Castro made himself prime minister saying that it was hearing the voice I mean people would call no you you you're the one to have the government you know there was I, I think in hindsight it must have been all fixed from the beginning but it it looked like the people of Cuba had begged Fidel Castro to become prime minister and the leader of the government and for him to name a new cabinet mm-hmm. and after that showing in television where he just got up there and 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 got himself mm-hmm. the 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 name prime minister of Cuba and there was no president at that at that time or or he named another president but the president had no powers the 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 power lied, lay with the with 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 the prime minister and that's when he started changing mm-hmm. and accelerating his path to communism okay so tell me so then you as a kid I was at that time I was 13 you're, you're hearing you're hearing the escalating talk over the dinner table is it affecting your life in any other way outside of general social tension not at that not, not at this yet. time not, not yet. yet okay because that's not, what I'm interested in right not like, yet. okay okay so then so then what's so then what happened so then very quickly certain measures were taken mm-hmm. number one, he decreed the abolition of private of private no let me see it's not at that time not private enterprise as a whole mm-hmm. but he said that everybody who was in a rented house now owned it okay so private property was seized mm-hmm. and that was very popular of people that don't that don't have renters no, no imagine i mean yeah, yeah. everybody was a renter became okay. the owner of a house Correct. my dad who who thought that was crazy i mean the, the, you did know, your dad own more than one house no but my grandfather did but your grandfather did his dad did okay and those houses but but You can't do that. In other words, you just can't all of a sudden say, "Hey, you know what? There's no more. There's no obviously, more obviously, obviously, obviously leasing. You can't uh, do that. No, 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 obviously. And and I remember that some people were very happy. I remember being with my dad when one of his friends says, "Hey, Humberto, look how great Fidel Castro is. We all own our house now." And my dad said, "No, no, that's not what he did. What he's telling you is you can't own a second home when you can't move." Hmm. Because now he said the government owns your house. You don't own it. You remember him saying this to somebody? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, it, it dawned on me yeah. what this fellow had done. So that was the, one of the first measures that he took. And after that, he 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 declared like a war on private industry. And newspapers were being not taken over at that time they took him over a little bit later mm-hmm. but whenever there's an article written against Fidel Castro there would be like they call it a coletilla which would would mean like like uh, a paragraph mm-hmm. denying everything that the journalist that had written against Castro said and mm-hmm. also saying that it was treasonous yeah and and man, he then took over the agriculture he declared an agrarian reform whereby you couldn't own any more than x number of plots and if you did you have to give it you have, it was taken away by the government give it to somebody else mm-hmm. 
not as in ownership, but not even leasing. It's just you. Yeah, yeah. This is a government land. You take care of yeah. it, and, and and whatever you produce, you sell to the government. Wow. And he became centralizing all the supplies and yeah, everything yeah. and the industry. So so while this is happening, are you hearing your parents saying that you should leave Cuba? No, we're hearing our parents complain that they they couldn't believe that this, that this was happening, happening and okay. there was opposition to that. But and in school. Are like your friends, some of them one side of the equation, others are other side of the equation. Absolutely, absolutely. And was it was it separating people? Like were people like getting yes. pissed at each other for not agreeing with no, each other? No, I mean we start arguing in school. Yeah. About about some of us because it took my dad and my mom maybe five months to understand that they did like Fidel Castro yeah, and they yeah. were opposing him. And then everybody and else so, you know, was like in love with him. And 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 because he went from being a hero to like the people understanding what he was doing, right? There was very first, quickly the yeah. middle class, the yeah. middle class of, of, of yeah. Cuba. I mean, but at, at one point he was a universal hero. Yes. So people had to change their mind on him to not like him. It, they couldn't like nobody started off not liking him except for Batista. That's right. Okay, so that's I think that that's a really relevant piece of it because human beings have a hard time changing their mind once they've made up about something, right? So like, sure. I think that's part of it. Not right? only that, he hadn't done anything when he, yeah. started, when he started doing things. That, you know, it's funny because uh, Cubans have this sense of humor and the revolution started uh, to be called the, the revolution of the corn in your foot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you ask me, well, why is that? He said, because everybody was for... Fiel Castro, until he stepped on your foot, <laughs> and he stepped on the corner of your foot, oh, and then he hurt you, yeah. and then you were not for him anymore. So he didn't. He didn't overnight. In 1960, he, this did not happen overnight. This happened every month. Yeah. After May or June, on more he more would he just step and step on more people, taking over more businesses, and he would take him. He would take him by sectors. Yeah. So my dad sectors, which is the pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. were taken over. In October mm-hmm. of 1960, mm-hmm. and the way that happened, the militia would come to my dad's office and would say, "Okay, this is now an industry of the people, and in your board of directors, you have to appoint several of the militia members that are going to that are going to come here, and they're going to make sure that 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 you produce for the people and for the government, and not not for yourself." So, by that time, by the end, by the beginning of July, when, when school vacation started, mm-hmm. get, no, June, my mom was already totally against Castro. My dad wasn't sure. My dad was against Castro. He wasn't sure we had to leave my mom. This is July. This is July of Ju- 1960. July prior to October where his business gets expropriated. Yes. Okay, continue. Yes. He, she's... So we had an aunt here in 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 Pampano Beach. Mm-hmm. So Yacuca? when school uh, uh, Maruca. Maruca, yeah. Yeah Maruca. Yeah Maruca. And and we came I think at, at the end of June and we stayed June, July and August with the purpose that we were gonna we're not gonna come back to Cuba. But my dad stayed in Cuba and he came and then he he came in, in August. He tried to see if he could get something done here. And eventually said, no, we're going back. So after we made the first trip to the U.S., we went back to Cuba early September. I started classes. Mentally, were you already thinking that you were going to be living in the U.S.? Yes. You thought you were, and then no, you went I back. No, I wanted to. 
You wanted to move I to wanted, Paris. At that time, I was co co completely in favor of, of, of coming over to the U.S. because mm -hmm. I saw it in school. People were leaving, you know, every day. People okay. were leaving. And from, from when classes started in 1960, mm -hmm. in my school, Ralston Academy, an American school and all yeah. that, every week we had two less students or three less students or four less students. So when that when when that when that episode happened that the militia came and told my dad that you know well let's get to there let's get to there right now we're still in in Miami you're with the Amaruca no well we spent the well we we spent mm -hmm. the summer here yeah it was the summer so you, we did nothing you decided to go back you enrolled back and in then, school and then dad came over late August uh -huh. he stayed here for about fifteen days. We moved from Tia Maruca's house and got, I think, a hotel place, some a hotel someplace, uh -huh. and he started looking for opportunities yeah. to invest or do whatever here in the United States mm -hmm. or jobs or whatever. And he didn't like what he saw, yeah. so we we were we turned back. My okay. mom, my sister, and I went back with my dad and I and my sister and I started school. As a fourteen year old, were you like pissed to go back, or were you just like, all right, fuck it, I'm going back? I just thought I was going to be in Miami. I, Do you remember I, having a visceral reaction to it? No, no I, like, I simply whatever. did what I was told. Okay. All right. okay. <laughs> and now, now, but by that time I was fourteen, almost, I, almost fifteen. I mean. Yeah, that's why I almost mean, fifteen, I, I and I had a man of my own. And yeah, I, yeah, that's what I, I mean. wasn't happy with the fact that we went back. But I understand okay. that the family had to go back well, together. That, that's what I mean. Like you had your opinion. My right? dad, if my dad was not happy, we were okay yeah. with moving back with him. Yeah, I mean, we're kids. I understand. Uh, I was just wondering if you were, you were at an age where you that, had your opinion and you weren't for and that. And that opinion. deteriorated very quickly. Okay. Because by the end of October, my dad was, you Your know, dad's my dad's business was threatened. Okay. And, and my mom, God bless, God bless her, she would have reservations to come to Miami every Friday from... The day that the day that we returned to Cuba till the day that my dad said, you know what, I think they're taking over my business. They just threatened me, blah, blah, blah. And mom says, okay, <laughs> Friday, the 11th of November, we're going to the United States and we ain't coming back until this thing, until, until, until something's done about Castro. she had the reservation already. And we were very lucky that, 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 that we took that decision because we came early. Mm -hmm. I remember we had 24 suitcases. Wow. When we came over, the four of us came over. Wow. I have to tell you that it wasn't easy for my dad because he was the elder of the family. My granddad had already died. He died in 50 and 58 and 57. Mm -hmm. And his younger brothers were Fidelistas. And they, yeah. were, they, they, were, they, they, they were supporting the revolution. And his mom, and they all lived with my grandma. He, my dad was the only one that did not live in my grandfather's compound mm. because my mom was very independent. They said, we're going to have our own house and we're going to have our own family. And we did that, but the rest of my dad's brothers lived in, like the in, in houses. Lived. Yes, in houses that surrounded uh, my, my, my grandfather's house that belonged to my grandfather, okay? okay? And they were there. Some of them lived in the house of my grandfather, okay? It, so these people just stayed behind. Every single member of the Gonzalez family stayed in Cuba. The only one that left was my dad, my mom, and us. Wow. And how many cousins did you have? There. At that time, I had about five. You had about five cousins. Yeah. Wow. Uh, two, two older than me okay. and two younger than me, maybe four. So tell me, so what's the story about the guy with the rifle on his back? Tell me that story. What? 
the guy with the, what's the story? There's the story of a guy that shows up with a rifle in his back and threatens Abuelo, right? No, that shows up with a rifle. He showed up and he was, <laughs> that didn't happen. So tell me that story. Okay, the story is that this fellow, who was the janitor, also member of the militia, uh-huh. shows up in full uniform. And the janitor of the medical supply company that Abuelo had. Yeah, it's a pharmaceutical a company. A pharmaceutical company. They, they, actually, they actually have patents. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so they produced the vitamin C. Vetter was very famous in Cuba. Okay, okay, okay. It's, it's, it started. So the janitor of a, of a pharma company that Abuelo had. Yes, Abuelo was one of the two partners that one were involved there, partners, and, yeah. and my my dad was the president of the company. Yeah. So he shows up and says, "Well, from now on, you're going to report everything that's happening." So he threatens that the government's going to take over the business, uh-huh. and he he says that the workers need to be a part of the decision making of the company. That lasted a month. A month, you know, in January, Fidel declared that he was communist and yeah, yeah, yeah. businesses really were taking over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my my dad saw handwriting on the wall then and he came yeah. home very worried. And then my, that's when my mom says, so okay, he came home, pack he up said because we're abuela. leaving. Were you there? Did you watch him explain that to Abuela? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What was that, at a dinner table? Were you sitting at a dinner table? No, he came home and, and in the living room. We were in the living room like My this. sister and I were there. We were here. And he said, like, That's right. <laughs> That's right. And my mom very calmly said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh-huh. And then our grandparents on my mother's side lived with us. Uh-huh. So we had to wait those two weeks because we wanted to ship them out first mm-hmm. to Maruka's house. To Maruka. I mean, that, those were her parents too. So yeah, of course. My, 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 my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side left before we did and went with Maruka. And then on November 11th, 1960, myself, my sister, my mother and my dad with our 24 suitcases, got into a Pan-American plane, and we flew to Miami, never to return. I hope you enjoyed that conversation right there as much as I did. Listen, Connect with Pablo is a content marketing community creation agency. The bottom line is that if you can start creating content that can give value to your customers or audience while creating strategic relationships through it, you can have a content machine that allows you to tell the story of your business through the value you are creating while gathering people together. If you're curious about that or know someone who could be, please shoot me an email at you should at connectwithpablo.com or hit me up on Instagram or LinkedIn through the profiles tagged in the show notes. If you just want a quick pick me up and some tactical advice right before walking into a room full of strangers, go to connectwithpablo.com Watch the five-minute video about how to walk into a room and not feel like you're all alone and or download the little cheat sheet on how to do just that. I have a lot of my friends that I've done networking with me for a long time tell me that they love watching that thing and carrying it around when they're walking into a networking event or they're walking into a conference or sometimes even if you're just walking into a wedding and you don't know anybody, right? It has a lot of use for it. I invite you to check it out if you need it. I really hope you stick around, connect with me, and start leaning into finding value in others and feeling like you have value to give yourself. It'll make the world a better place, I promise. Until the next episode, I am Pablo Gonzalez, your Chief Executive Connector.